Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Hidden Noise. I'm Abby Sandler, and today on Hidden Noise, we will be doing things a little differently. In light of issue nine of Even hitting stands next week, I dragged both of my bosses into the studio to talk a little bit about the new issue. Our dear publisher and my dear co-host, Rebecca Siegel, and our editor-in-chief, Jason Farrago, thank you guys for joining me this morning. Thank you for having us. Hi there, Abby. We are very excited that this is issue nine, which is about six more than I think Jason and I would have ever imagined we would finally produce. It's about nine more than I think we ever <laughs> thought we would produce. But this is our spring issue, and uh, it's it's a bit different than the last two that we've done, which have been uh, much more focused on Asia, and this one's actually a little bit more European. That's right. The issues of even, this is now the end of our third year, have never strictly had themes, But very often in the editing process, we begin to see that the content is sort of coalescing around certain ideas and also certain geographic locations. There's very often a kind of uh, thread that runs through the issues. And certainly after looking at Asia quite closely in the two previous issues, this came to be a really profoundly European issue of even and I think what I'm proudest of in it and what I think the writers did best in it is that it really treats Europe as not just the default you know especially in America we sometimes think that art is European naturally you go to the Met you go up the main stairs there's a European painting and then there's this other stuff called non-western which you somehow have to sort of reform and that Europe sort of naturally sits at the center we really didn't want to do that and we wanted to think about Europe as a continent like any other a place like any other that deserves to be thought of whose culture deserves to be thought of in the same way that we would think about Latin America in the past, that we thought about Asia, and that we, indeed we think about the United States. And also whose structure in and of itself and the unity that we ascribe to that structure is somewhat in question. Absolutely. The idea that Europe is the old world uh, and... And unified in that and uniform in that. Yes. The, that Well, Donald Rumsfeld would have said something very different in the, uh, in the early 2000s, <laughs> but yes, that's right. Um, the idea of European unity, which has been pretty much the central question in all the recent European elections and went one way in France, went the other way in Britain, um, and has roiled places as far as as, uh, as Poland and Hungary. These are not old-fashioned questions. These are not questions about uh, a dying continent or a dead continent. Um, these are questions that remain open and that cultural figures, artists, writers, intellectuals have a really central role in playing. One of the reasons I know this, of course, and one of the reasons I I take it as seriously as I do is that actually even magazine, the beautiful object of which uh, I wish I could show you, but that you can check out on our website and in newsstands now. Just close um, your eyes and picture this. (laughs) uh, It comes to you all the way from Belgium. We are a magazine very proud to be based in New York, but when Rebecca and I started the magazine, we began casting around for where we could get the most beautiful object printed at a price we could afford and finding the perfect balance between quality and accessibility brought us to the picture book story town of Bruges, Belgium, uh, known 
for basically two things. One for sort of weekend trips to eat chocolate and ride in the back of horse-drawn carriages, and the other for that um, that, that movie, movie in Colin Bruges. Yeah, yeah. Um, in it's very weird when I get I think in the Carter Burwell did the score. <laughs> um, uh, and it's the guy who did Three Billboards, um, the Irish yes. guy Martin McDonough, who who directed that. And when you go to Bruges, when I go to print the magazine, often the very first question that the cab drivers ask you is, "So, have you seen that movie in Bruges?" It's like the only thing that happened in this city in for the last five hundred <laughs> years. There was Jan van Eyck in the fifteenth century, and now there was this movie. That's about it. Uh, but the um, the printing is extraordinary, and therefore I'm not only in in Bruges but in Brussels very often. And Brussels, which is the of course the unofficial capital of the European Union, it's the home of the European Commission uh, and of the European Council, and most of the time of the European Parliament. Um, Brussels is a bizarre wonderful city, a city where everyone's a foreigner, where whether you speak French or Dutch, you consider yourself as somehow in opposition to something else, and where there's just an enormous class of people, journalists, lobbyists, taxi drivers, who have come from other parts of the world in order to make a new life in this thing called Europe that doesn't really fully have a form yet. And what I guess I really wanted to do with this issue when I write about this in the editor's letter is to think about what this sort of new form of Europe could be and how culture has a role to play in that. Brussels is also where you had a chance to interview one of the artists who are featured in this issue. So she's a, a perfect example of that. This is a painter called Lucy Mackenzie. Lucy is Scottish uh, and has lived in Brussels for about 10 years. Brussels, uh, it's not as famous as Berlin still. It, within um, hipster 20-something art circles, people will often say, oh, you know, Brussels is the new Berlin. I'm so over Berlin. And Brussels has got this 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 energy there. There's been a travel story or two, but the secret isn't 100% out yet on, on Brussels, as for many of the same reasons as, as, as Berlin, the studios are cheap and it's easy to get around. Uh, and Lucy was one of the artists who moved there from Edinburgh in the mid-2000s. And uh, as we discuss in this piece, Lucy very much conceives of herself as a European artist, uh, someone with roots in Scotland, someone who cares about where she comes from. She went to art school in Scotland, but who thinks at European scale. And the place to do that for her was Brussels. And so I went over to her studio uh, one very rainy, classically rainy Brussels day, and I can't even tell you the size of the studio. It's embarrassing. I mean, when you think about what we live in in New York, I mean, this thing was the size of, of like two townhouses, and she's got it all to herself. And, you know, she's a successful artist. I don't begrudge her anything, but Brussels allows you, in the same way that Berlin did, but in a much more European, in a, in a context where you're constantly coming into contact with people from across the continent, and indeed from North Africa, from other parts of the world as well. So hanging out with Lucy was a was a was a real privilege. Lucy is a painter who is trained with the same rigor as anybody else who went to a hipster art school, uh, but then also gave herself this wild secondary education at a painting school, the Ecole van der Kalen in Brussels, where she learned how to do trompe l'oeil painting of marble. So you know if you go to like a pizza restaurant and it's got like fake fountains and the kind of like fake marble, those kind of like coral and sea foam colors, that's the kind of painting that Lucy 
learned how to do. And it's stuff that isn't considered incredibly prestigious, but technically it's really, really difficult. And this is super different from the other interviewer, Giuseppe Pinone, who is actually deeply Italian and and, and uses that as a very sort of, side of central part of his identity that is borderline fixed. Yeah. Giuseppe Pannone was born in uh, a rural area of the northwest of Italy, of Piedmont. Um, and where he comes from is absolutely central to the work that he makes. Pannone's always been interested in trees, in the natural world, and the art that he was making beginning in the late 1960s has often been taken the form of either bronze casts of trees, um, of impressions of leaves, thorns from bushes, things like this. Uh, and so deeply, deeply rooted not only in the natural world, but in the culture in which he grew up. And the, and the site. And the very, very site. So for example, uh, one of his most important early works in the late 1960s, he would go into the forest and he would grasp a sapling, a young tree, so hard that he could make an impression on it. And then he would cast the uh, his gripped hand in bronze such that as the tree continued to grow over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, the growth of the tree was interrupted by this sort of human intervention. With that said, you know, the weirdest thing that happened in this interview, and this is like really one for the even history books, I showed up at the gallery where I was going to meet Giuseppe, and he just says to me, he's like, so we can do this in French, right? I said, <laughs> excuse me? You're like, well, that he goes, well, I'm just much plan. more comfortable in French than I am in English. And you don't speak Italian, do you? And I don't speak Italian, but I do speak enough French to get by this. And so I had this, it was this funny sort of like, it felt very 19th century intellectual, the American and the Italian meet, and they have to speak in the one language that they share <laughs> together. So, in France. so what you will read in the issue is a, uh, is a translation of the conversation that Giuseppe and I had. And over the history of the past nine issues, have there been other curveballs along the way? Aside from the last testament to the lingua franca? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It would be uh, it would be dishonest to say that everything that comes into the even inbox ends up in print without a hiccup. You know, I had big dreams for One Piece and it didn't necessarily work out the way I thought it was going to. Uh, Let's just say that one of the luxuries but also the challenges of print is that it has a set shape. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You've got a certain amount of pages. And in digital publishing, if you uh, have a piece that really doesn't come in that well or that comes in late, for example, you can always futz around with the process. In print, you don't have that luxury. It didn't help that we were closing this issue right around Christmas time. and uh, When everyone is most on their game. And precisely. <laughs> available and, for everyone. You know, and look, and part of being an editor is knowing when to hold them and when to fold them, as they say in poker. And I have had pieces that have come into this magazine that have not been at the standard that I think even magazines should be operating at every time. And through some rigorous editing and a lot of sweat and a couple late nights, We've published things I'm very proud of. Just a couple. Just a couple. Once or once or twice. (laughs) Then you get the piece. This is rich. (laughs) Then you get the piece where you just look and you know no amount of surgery, no amount of reform is going to get you even close to being over the line. And I have the great luxury of having a publisher who at these immediate moments is able to dig deep into the coffers of even magazine and, and, and say, for the right price at the right time, we can fix this problem. And so, you know, 
We did. It turns out that, you know, and one of the exciting things about doing a magazine like this, of course, is that things come together in different speeds. Our, our cover story, which is on uh, a collection of art that was uh, recently seized by the German police and has links to the Nazis, came together over about four months. We also have pieces that came together in about 48 hours. I'd like to believe that in some cases you can see um, the amount of rigor and the amount of research that went into them, but in some other cases, especially with the lighter material in the front of the book. I don't think it's so clear what the kind of gestation period for these things are. And Jason, can I quickly interrupt you just to give some of our listeners an idea who maybe haven't read the magazine cover to cover? What the, you know, precise structure of the magazine looks like. I'd be happy to. So every issue of Even has three long essays. The most important in this new issue, as I was saying, is about this collection of art that was seized uh, that has a provenance coming from the Nazis. But then beyond that, we're always looking at new exhibitions of art, both contemporary art and historical art. And these reviews take the form not of thumbs up, thumbs down, not take the form of Instagram posts. We love Instagram. We think that after Instagram, a magazine had to do something different. And so these reviews are longer eight-page meditations on either themes or on how two shows contradict one another and putting these things into conversation. So one of them in the current issue, we found a brilliant writer, Susanna Thompson, who is in Glasgow and who looked at three shows. One was of art from before 1945, one was of art from the 1980s, 1990s, and one was of three young kids, and really looking at how she could look at these exhibitions and teach us something of a place, Scotland, that I care about, but you know, I don't really know a lot about at all. And so finding an expert like Susanna and and letting her meditate on these exhibitions as something much more than, you know, these shows have opened and closed. We're never going to be able to get to see them. I think that criticism really has to do something different at this point, which is allow non-experts to engage with the larger issues and the larger themes and the more urgent questions around art exhibitions and, and also books and music and film as well. So then, in addition to those reviews and the essays, and the two interviews. We also have a portfolio that we give to a young artist every issue. The back uh, 16 pages or so of the magazine is devoted to a single artist, an Italian artist, a photographer in this case called Michele Borzoni. So in this portfolio, he was looking at a lot of questions about economics in Italy. You know how you go to Barney's and you see the Made in Italy tag on one of these things and you think, oh, well, at least that's a marker. It must have come from somewhere legit. And this goes from Dolce and Gabbana and Marnie all the way to... And, you know, they are made in Italy. They're made in Italy in a Chinese sweatshop. And the tag was sewn on there. The tag was so Yeah, exactly. You can begin the supply chain in Romania or in in Taiwan. Uh, And so Michele went to a number of these sweatshops outside of Florence where he lives. He also went to see some factories, some luxury goods factories that were in economic peril and where the workers basically took over and they built a cooperative uh, that would allow the um, leather goods manufacturers or these other sort of small producers to continue to work. And the great thing about that portfolio is that it's engaged with some really interesting questions about economics, uh, but it's also just 
beautiful to look at. And that, for me, has always been the goal of the portfolio. Then the final section of the magazine is called Negatives. Negatives is in the front of the book and is a shorter, lighter section. And what we've always wanted to do in Negatives is look at issues that matter in a register that is not impolite necessarily, but... um, It's the one venue for a little bit of irony, perhaps even borderline snark in the whole context of the magazine. It's where you come up for air. And over the course <laughs> of the issue. And the current one has an open letter to Meghan Markle. Uh, the current one also has uh, a piece I'm very happy to be publishing, which is about Google's plans to build an entire neighborhood in Toronto. They've taken this derelict site on the water on Lake Ontario and are developing it not just for the individual uh, condos, but for an entire infrastructure of street patterns, metrics on people's health and on their educational attainments. And they've done all of this without an architect in sight. Not a single architect. Um, The irony. It's kind of the reverse Amazon HQ2, right? Um, With Amazon, they have basically been trying to strip pension funds dry in any city that'll let them come in. Google is paying good money for this, and that at least I respect. Um, The question is... Um, this relationship between private enterprise and public administration, all the data that Google is going to be harvesting from everything from how fast do the buses move down the street to at what time do you turn your lights on and off? Who is the proper owner of that data? That's the question that Linda Bessner, uh, who wrote the piece, uh, has asked. But then it's also the really more in-your-face questions about what is a Google neighborhood going to look like anyway? I mean, Particularly given the fact that unlike something per se like Apple. Apple knows how to design. Right. There's a very little design Google sort of intrinsic in Google. Google's yeah. not known for their aesthetics as no. we have all learned by the new iCal. I'm sort of, <laughs> I can't live with this iCal. If this iCal says one more day, I used to The brilliance of iCal. this is that you guys are calling it iCal. I know. And Google I just realized it's not, it it not that's <laughs> Apple. I realized it's Google Calendar. Yes, and I, this is the point to Apple's I design, totally right? They've actually managed to name calendars in a way that despite the fact that we're talking about Google, you guys are still using that. Um, but yes, I think that um, that part of the really brilliance of her, you know, relatively short piece is also sort of taking a look at whether or not design should even factor into efficiency anymore. Absolutely. And the question of what comes first, the design or the um, the substructure, you know, do you build the infrastructure first and the zoning laws first and the principles first and then tell the architects, do what you want? Or is it the other way around? Often with matters of gentrification is the tough w- word for it. The other urban word could redevelopment. be urban redevelopment. <laughs> um, it has been individual uh, design masterpieces, often in the forms of museums or other cultural institutions that have led to regeneration or gentrification, depending on which spin that you want to put on this. Google so far seems to be going in the other direction. And I think that watching this experiment play out is going to be a lot more interesting than watching the Amazon experiment play out. I think the open question, and it's the question that Linda raises, is is who is it good for? I also think that while we're talking about watching things play out, one of the sections of the magazine that Jason has not necessarily alluded to thus far is our section called Even More. Even More is arguably the most useful section of the magazine, which is why I want to highlight it for everyone. (laughs) Speaking Um, of efficiency. Speaking (laughs) of efficiency, and my job as publisher, I will tell you that Even More uh, lays out 
a month's worth of shows opening internationally that we think should be on everyone's radar. While we recognize that you're not necessarily making it across the globe every single month, uh, nor are we for that matter. Um, Jason Well, has, speak for yourself. Well, Some <laughs> of us have got... <laughs> Jason has more here. aggressive travel plans than the rest of us. But um, it is a, a real attempt to sort of put things on everyone's radar that are noteworthy either because the venue and the artist collaboration are in and of itself worthwhile if it's an artist who has been previously unrecognized if there's a breakout piece in the show or if there's a group uh, show being organized either in the context of a biennale or a larger exhibition that is somehow noteworthy things that you should be aware of because they will perhaps change the tide of how things are moving. And we've really tried in every issue to pick a single show, one per month, that we think is going to be maybe not the exhibition that is going to draw the greatest amount of press coverage and the greatest amount of private jets, but is or going Instagram to, or posts. Instagram posts indeed, uh, but that is going to be the one that makes the greatest long-term impact on where culture is going. And that for me, you know, it's always been very important for me for even to have one foot in New York City and one foot traipsing around the rest of the globe. We are a proudly New York magazine, um, and indeed the sort of European focus of the current issue of even is very much a foreigner's view on Europe. With that said, you know, we've also wanted to say, you know, you're probably thinking of going on a vacation this time, that's six months, let's say. Maybe instead of chasing the next big art fair, you might want to go to this one show. This is the one that we think is really going to have the greatest impact. Because of even more, I might have to go to Munich. <laughs> I'm really excited about the Jutta Kutcher show that's opening there at Museum Brandhorst. Yeah, this is previewed in the May uh, uh, pages of Even More. So uh, as, as we were saying, each month gets a sort of four-page preview of a single show and then a little sidebar with some, um, some secondary choices. Jutta Kutcher, a German painter who's based here in New York, who's really exploded the possibilities of the question of display. For Kutcher, the question of painting doesn't end in the studio. She's making these churning, uh, often difficult to look at pictures in reds and ochres and oranges and browns. Uh, but then what happens is that they're either displayed too high on the wall, too low on the wall, attached to mirrors. There'll be a performance around them. She'll put them in a building that isn't necessarily optimized for art. And how do you do a museum retrospective of an artist who's thinking not just about, you know, the the four sides of the canvas, but is thinking about a whole network of how these paintings move, circulate, get seen, et cetera, et cetera. So that's opening in Munich in May. I am more excited myself about the Sydney Biennale, especially on this snowy day in New York City. I was sort of dreaming that I was in the other hemisphere and sunbathing on, beach, on Tamarama Beach, exactly, <laughs> on the way to on the way to the Biennale. I mean, you never should really trust a magazine editor who flies 22 hours just because the coffee is better. But nevertheless, <laughs> I think that, you know, Sydney is, is a good example of what the Even More section can do because the biennial hasn't opened yet. We, have, we know the list of artists and we know the curator, but these have to be previews. And so thinking about what the larger questions around this one are, in this case, we were interested in the, how Australia, which is not just geographically pretty distant from 
the conversation we're often having around art, has been able to find more influence by looking directly at Asia rather than by trying to say to people here in New York or in London, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so this is going to be the first Sydney Biennale that has an Asian curator uh, and a very substantial number of artists from Asia. And so if you were getting to the end of your Northern Hemisphere winter and thinking, I can't take it anymore, uh, that would be my suggestion for where to spend a week. Three days at the biennial and four days on the beach would be, for me, a pretty nice uh, a pretty nice early March. The goal in life is for Jason to organize all of our travel plans <laughs> because he has really found a way to uh, organize uh, some of his best vacations around some of these <laughs> art going trips. So, Abby, now that we've told you where we're planning to travel, what's on your radar? Uh, well, as we know, I stay a little more local with Hidden Noises, the guiding force in my <laughs> life. But I'm very excited for Adrian Piper at MoMA which I think opens at the end of March. End of March, and it's yeah. going to be huge. She's the first living artist ever to get the whole sixth floor of the building. It's going to be big. So hopefully we'll be many, many more episodes deep into Hidden Noise, and we'll be able to profile that later on. But until then, everyone should go to evenmagazine.com, subscribe to the print edition, make sure that this very beautiful magazine that Jason travels often to Belgium to print, it hits your mailboxes in the coming weeks, and it will come with a wonderful tote bag if you are a new subscriber. Some of the most interesting articles from the new issue of the magazine will be online. To read the entirety, you're going to have to subscribe or get a print copy for yourself. But do check out the website, and I really do hope you read it. And on that note, thank you, Rebecca and Jason, thank for joining you, me this morning thank and you. giving our listeners a little... A better idea of how this beautiful book comes together and making it seem so much more seamless than it ever is. (laughs) Thanks, Abby. Thank you, Abby.